Welcome to the Radiant Podcast. We are so glad you joined us today. This podcast features messages, interviews, and discussions from Radiant Church located in Seneca, South Carolina. For more information about Radiant, visit RadiantChurchSC.com. Here's today's episode. All right. Thanks for listening to the Radiant Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Andrew. I'm the pastor here at Radiant Church. And so we are doing a special deep dive episode here. Every so often, we, we, we're going to try to produce these um, different teachings in between what we're doing here at Radiant Church on, on Sundays. You, 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 know, you can't fit everything in to a Sunday morning. I wish you could, but it's just impossible. And often these special episodes, you know, they, they're only in audio format, by the way. So if you're not subscribed to the audio podcast, please do that. It's uh, Spotify, Google, Apple, wherever you listen to it, make sure you do so because we're only doing these special ones in audio form. Um, but, you know, every so often you, you just want to go deeper on, on some subject matter. And right now we're in the Gospel of Luke and we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. It's 2023, depending when you're listening to this. And uh, from January to Easter, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke, and we're looking at different aspects of Jesus' ministry. We're, we're, we're segmenting it. You know, we just did miracles in January, we're doing parables in February. And when you look at the Gospels, it got me thinking this past week because I, I, I we're, we're, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And that's the only miracle that all four Gospels record. And so when you look at the Gospels, you're like, man, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're kind of similar. John is way out there. We'll talk about John here in a little bit, uh, but they're all kind of similar. Um, yet they they have some differences, right? And some gospels include stuff like Jesus being born, and some don't. And 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 and, and why is that? Do they contradict each other? You know, why 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 don't we just have one gospel? Why do we have four? And it, those are all great questions, and a lot of people have questions. Um, about about that and, and and differences with the Gospels themselves and can we trust them, all that kind of thing. And I, I'm not going to be able to answer all those here in this episode uh, that we're doing. It's called Puzzle Pieces. And, and the reason we're calling it that is because I really think that you should look at the Gospels as puzzle pieces, whether you've grown up in church and, and you're well-versed in Scripture um, or, or, or you're just exploring. Maybe you don't have faith yet, right? I think you're going to be able to follow along here and, and learn a few things Um with with the gospels and and see that how you know there's four of them yeah but but together they really do form the whole complete picture of Jesus there's a lot to cover so let me just kind of start with with this kind of start with this 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 basic there is a division between the gospels all right and and I alluded to it a little bit earlier so you have Matthew Mark and Luke which are really similar and we call those the synoptic Gospels, right? Because there, there's a lot of similarity between them. Um, there, there's not a whole lot of differences. There are differences, but not very many. Um, so those three are often grouped together. And you'll notice that they, yeah, as you read, they have similar stories, events, even similar composition. If you want to get really deep and crazy and get into the Greek and how it's structured and the outlines and all that kind of stuff, they're even similar that way. Uh, the differences get even greater uh, with, with the Greek language, as I said. But I think, I'm not going to jump too deep into that, though, because <laughs> uh, we don't have time. But then you have John, and, and John, man, way different. And John is entirely uh, something else unto itself. It's written later. It's full of unique stories and events that are not found in the other gospel accounts. The authors themselves, Matthew, Martin, Luke, and John, they all have different reasons for writing the gospels. 
and they wrote at different times. Mark was probably the earliest one to, to be written. Um, but despite their differences, they, they did write with the same ancient historical worldview. And I think that's really important uh, that we talk about that for a minute before we jump into the Gospels themselves as to why they were written and that sort of thing. Um, what, let's talk about the, the, the ancient worldview, the ancient history of biography, okay? So in our world, if you want to know more about a person, you read their biography, right? So as a kid, I, I read countless biographies. <laughs> Joe Montana, Andrew Jackson, Roger Clemens. I mean, I read biographies like crazy, autobiographies on people, did it a lot. And you know what each one of those books did? They gave me information overload. You know, like, like you knew where these people were born, where they went to school, who their greatest influences were, what life was like after they retired. Like you knew more than you kind of wanted or cared or needed to know about these guys. And that's what we, we view a biography as, right? But ancient historians didn't do that. They did not put together biographies in, in that kind of fashion. Rarely, if ever, would they even mention a birth narrative unless it held some kind of significance. And obviously with Jesus it does, and that's why two of them mention the birth story. But uh, you didn't care about their friends. You didn't care about their influences, where they studied, unless it held significance. This is really key here. Your definition and my definition of significance is not the same as an ancient historian's. So if you studied at Yale and became the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, uh, we'd say that your time in the Ivy League was a big deal. It's probably worth mentioning that, right? So, you know, Paul studied under Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi of the first century. And we only know this because of a single mention by Luke who is writing his history of the birth of the church in Acts. Paul never mentions it. Uh, Luke doesn't expound on Paul's educational history. There's just one mention of it, and, and that's it. So why is that? Because Paul's education under Gamaliel, uh, while in, it's, it's significant to us here today for sure, it was insignificant uh, back then. It did not have much of an impact on his legacy and what we know Paul for. And I think that's the key with ancient historians. They were interested in recording the details of what made a person who they were, what defined them, what was their legacy, what was the most significant aspect of their lives. So if you're looking at the life of Christ, clearly it's what? It's Jesus's public ministry that, that ends in his death and resurrection. That's where the focus is. That's the legacy. That's the significance. The birth narrative is important because of the ties to the Old Testament prophecies. Um, but notice we don't have much to go on right, from the time that he's born to the time he starts his public ministry. There's, there's, there's a mention about dedication at the temple. There's a mention about, you know, the Magi. He's about two years old when they come. There's a mention about Jesus being 12, teaching the folks in, in, in the temple, the Pharisees and other leaders. But there's really not a whole lot there. And the reason there is is because, again, nothing of significance that impacts the legacy and defines Jesus really happened in that period. I know that sounds crazy to think about because we think of life as, well, a lot can happen in those formative years. Well, that's true. But again, if you're a first century ancient historian, you don't care. <laughs> you're focused on what was the defining era of that person's life. What are they most known for? What did they have the biggest impact doing? So everything that happened in between was just not, not important to them. So 
I think that's the first key to understanding how the Gospels work, is knowing that kind of basic viewpoint of, of a person's story they're trying to convey. That is why you don't have all this information about him as a kid and all that kind of stuff. So we can kind of get this out of the way right now. And so we've established that, okay, they're only going to focus on, on, on his death, his resurrection, his teachings, his ministry, because when you think of Jesus, I mean, even today, right? You think of Jesus, you think of miracles, you think of healing, you think of the cross, the empty tomb, you think of teaching God's kingdom. Like, that's what you think about. And then that's, that's what they're focusing on. Here's the second key, and this is what's going to take the rest of our time together as we unpack it. You need to look at each gospel writer and you need to know why they chose to write about Jesus. That's really important. Each writer has an agenda. Now, I don't mean they have an agenda in the sense of trying to falsify information or stretch the truth, but there is a different angle that each writer is trying to take, and they're doing that on purpose. Uh, by the way, they're not all written in chronological order, <laughs> okay? So I know that might blow your mind a little bit, uh, again, because we tend to do that today, right? We, we don't we don't mix things up, but the ancients didn't necessarily always follow logical or chronological patterns all the time. They would often arrange writings and stories topically and try to do it thematically. So you can't exactly see a, a pure chronological timeline play out just by reading the Gospels. You kind of have to do a little legwork and put it together yourself. In fact, if you want to see how that works and how it plays out, I highly recommend a book called A Harmony of the Gospels. It's called, it's called A Harmony of the Gospels. And it does put the life and ministry of Jesus in order. And you see the parallels with each gospel as you read it through. It'll actually have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together on the pages. You're reading the same passages if they're if they're present. You know, if all three synoptics have a passage, you'll read all three side by side. If, if John has one, John comes into the picture. If one is a standalone because it's only found in Luke, you'll you'll read what was found in Luke. But it's all placed in, 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 a, in a timeline, in a chronological timeline of how things played out. It's kind of cool. I uh, can't recommend that book enough. I still use it today in my own study. Um, so, all right, so let's get each writer. We'll start with Matthew because he's, he's the one you see first in your New Testament. Matthew's not the first one written, mind you. Uh, again, I'm, 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 I'm very confident, many scholars are as well, that Mark was written first. Uh, but Matthew is, is, is the one that's listed first in the New Testament. So let's start with Matthew, okay? Um, Matthew and John, they're both direct eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. So Matthew is an apostle, and he's privy to that inner circle teachings and the events that Christ uh, took the 12 apostles on. Keep in mind, there were many followers of Jesus. There were not just the 12 disciples or apostles. Many, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, Zac Zacchaeus is a follower. Joseph Arimathea is a follower. Nicodemus is a follower. They're not always with Jesus. Sometimes they travel with him, um, but but they are followers of Christ. We we know of the twelve because that's the, the 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 inner circle, the ones who received direct personal instruction the entire three year period from Jesus. And even among the 12, there were the big three, Peter, James, and John, who saw things that, that not everybody else was able to see, okay? Matthew wasn't part of the big three, but he was certainly part of the 12. And he writes his gospel sometime before AD 70. We're not sure of an exact date, 
Personally, I think it was somewhere in the late 50s or early 60s. That's that's a little bullish, I think, pretty bullish on my part. The early church fathers largely believed he ministered and wrote his account prior to AD 70. You're going to hear me talk a lot about the early church fathers um, and early church history a lot in this podcast. Let me just quickly address that for a moment. The reason we give those guys so much weight is because the early church fathers were, were leaders who studied either directly under uh, one of these apostles. So, for example, Polycarp. Uh, he's not a Pokemon. <laughs> okay, He is a follower and the disciple of John. Polycarp studied under John. Polycarp has a student named Irenaeus who studies under him. And a lot of what we know from John comes from Irenaeus' writings. And we can trust Irenaeus. Why? Because Irenaeus is the student of Polycarp, who was the student of John. You're, you're, you're not very far removed from John himself here, right? I mean, you're, not, we're only, you're, just, you're, you're just a generation away, basically, right? So you, you, can, you can really put, a, in the ancient world, you can trust that. I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty good thing to go on. Um, so uh, the early church fathers are important. If they assign authority, if they assign tradition uh, to a particular book or author, uh, it carries a lot of weight because these guys, again, are either direct students of the apostles or they're students of the students who were under the apostles. And that's that's kind of how, um, that, that that's really how a lot of validity kind of comes about too. Uh, anyway, all right, so before I go further, let me just address another item real quick. Let me talk about dates for a moment too. Uh, I think this is important. Because when you hear 80, 70, you're probably thinking, wait, pastor, 80, 70, that's a long time. That's like, you know, if Jesus dies in 80, 30, right, that's 40 years. How in the world can you trust anything 40 years later? Well, <laughs> let's talk about this for a moment. Because in the first century, like in our world, yeah, 40 years, that's a long time. But in the first century, there's no internet. There's no mailing system uh, that's dependable anyway. Uh, news takes a long time to get from place to place. Most people can't read. So you have what? The art of oral storytelling that is really, really important and very much accepted. Um, we don't put a premium on that because we write everything down. We record stuff. I, I think over time, that dependency on record and recording that weakens our memory too. I don't think we use those muscles nearly as much. I, I, I can't prove this, but I would imagine the memory uh, of somebody in, in the ancient world was far better uh, than someone today in the 21st century because you had to remember stuff. I mean, you just, you just couldn't write things down for the, unless you were very privileged and well-educated. You weren't writing. So uh, you had to remember things. And, and you would repeat things constantly. How you tell stories is you would repeat the same story. And you would, you would have guys who would go to village to village telling a story. And uh, once the villagers heard it, they would remember it. So if somebody else comes along and tells a story but they tell it differently. They would call that author out and say, wait a minute, that's not how that goes. This is the part you're missing right here. Uh, so you, there was there were some checks and balances on that. And if you say, well, I, I, don't, I don't trust that. Well, just think about this. Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, we, we, those are great epics, right? That, that, that the Greek poet Homer um, told. They weren't recorded. They, they were orally told. I mean, you have to go, you are centuries removed from Homer's actual original telling of those epic poems to when they're recorded, 
on paper. And we don't question that, right? Like we don't question the validity uh, of, of, of his poem. And did Homer really say that? And then he took, no, like we, we, and that's the way the ancient world works. So the earliest copies far removed from when he actually told the story. So when you have Christ dying in AD 30, or some say AD 33, but I, I hold to AD 30, um, and you have the earliest recording of a gospel, in this case, Mark, who I think wrote in the 40s. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. That's miraculous. Like that is lightning, warp speed, hyperdrive type kind of stuff to record it in a, in a span so close to the actual events. And that's that's not just Mark. That would be the same for Matthew. It would be the same for John, who wrote his probably in the early to mid-90s at the end of that century. You just simply didn't record things that fast in the ancient world. It was very, very, very rare to do that. All right. So Matthew, he, he, he wrote his before 8070. I'm thinking, um, and other scholars uh, side kind of where I'm at too. I, th I think it's in the 50s. Some will say you know it's the late 60s, but definitely, definitely before the 70s. He has no real stated purpose for his gospel. So we see purpose. Like Luke's going to write to his friend Theophilus, so he might believe. John's going to write so others can believe in Christ. Matthew, though, has no stated purpose. But much of Matthew is tied to the Old Testament. And you're going to see more footnotes to Old Testament prophecy and references in Matthew than you are in any other gospel. So traditionally, it was thought that he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience, pulling from the Old Testament to show them how Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah sent by God. And he also includes large portions of Jesus' teachings on God's kingdom as well. So compare his recording of the Sermon on the Mount with the other synoptics. It's, it's not quite the same. Mark and Luke don't quite have the same depth as Matthew does to that, that sermon. So there's there's more detail. There's a vivid richness in Matthew's text. It's just one of the contributions he gives. He preserves a lot of Jesus' actual teachings and a lot of depth to those teachings. He complements the other Gospels in a few ways, too. Like So like Mark is the first Gospel written, but Mark does not include the birth narrative. Luke is written in the 60s, we think, and he includes Mary's genealogy and the story of the shepherds in the census. It's possible that Matthew chooses to supply Joseph's genealogy and the story of the Magi to complement what Luke has already provided, if Luke wrote his before Matthew. He, he may not have. We, we actually, we're not, we're not very sure about that. It could have been the other way around. Matthew could have been before Luke. But this, this is a male-dominated world. So I'm not entirely sure if Matthew includes Joseph as more of a Jewish contextual choice over Luke or not either. Uh, but I will say that Luke goes out of his way to include women. So there could be something to that. Either way, though, Matthew complements the genealogy in the birth narrative. So it's a great contribution that he makes. We'll wrap up Matthew with this, this view of Jesus. Each gospel writer has a unique view of Christ. So for Matthew, Jesus is the son of David. He's a son of Israel. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. The Jewishness of Jesus is at focus with Matthew in a way I would argue stands apart to an extent from the other writers. For Matthew, uh, Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the Son of God. But he's also the hope of the Gentiles. And we see that with his inclusion of the Great Commission. You know, 
things tend to happen for the, the Jews first. But then Jesus comes onto the scene, and, and, and really, Jesus, is with a great commission, and we kind of, we, you don't see this in the text. You're going to have to assume it. And, and I think it's safe to assume, given Matthew's strong ties to the Old Testament, the inclusion of the Great Commission is important. Israel in the Old Testament was directed by God to be a light to the nations. Their goal was, hey, we're going to live for the Lord and serve Him, and the nations around us will see our faithfulness to God, and they will come to this conclusion that, hey, we want what Israel has, and and, and and what does Israel have? They have this great law, the Mosaic law, and they have this God they serve. We're going to serve after their God. They were to be a light. The problem for Israel was they, they weren't... They, they were racist in a way. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but the story of Jonah is, is an incredible story. They viewed other peoples, whether you were Syrian, Greek, Philistine, it didn't matter. They viewed other people groups as inferior to themselves. Yet you're an inferior race. You're, you're not the chosen people, right? You're an inferior because of your spiritual ideology. You're inferior because of your culture. Israel had a really high view of themselves. And they fail at that task of being a light to the nation. So what does Jesus do in the Great Commission uh, at the end of Matthew? Hey, you Jewish followers are now going into the world. And you're going to be that light to the nations as my followers. Not as national of Israel, but as followers of Christ who happen to be Jewish, really. And that, that's, that's, that's incredible insight on Matthew's part. That, hey, we failed this this task in the Old Testament, but here we are, and we're getting we're getting a chance to, to do it the right way here. There, there's a reason he includes that. You have other references too, like you have things where Matthew talks about how how you know Jesus is going to be called a, you know, a a Nazarene. That's the Old Testament stuff. Well, it's not really Old Testament stuff per se. He's pulling out a a, a prophecy about uh, an important figure from the Lord. Who's, who's called the righteous branch. It's a really obscure passage uh, in one of the minor prophets. But, but Matthew has such a, a deep richness of the Old Testament that he looks at these things in, in, in the Old Testament works in the prophets and writings and says, man, you know what? That can't be a coincidence. It has to be Jesus. And so you see a lot of things that are assigned to Christ and Matthew linked to the Old Testament that the other writers in the Gospels either overlook or just choose not to to connect those dots. That's a big contribution that Matthew brings. Great richness of the Old Testament law and prophets and writings um, to his gospel. All right, let's jump to Mark. So Mark is the the shortest gospel. It's also the first one recorded. And, And I'm in the minority with this, but I really believe Mark wrote his gospel sometime in the mid to late 40s. The traditionally accepted date for Mark is the early to mid-50s. You say, wait a minute, why are you so early? Well, because Mark was a companion of Peter and also of Paul. And Peter probably found his way to Rome in the mid-40s. Rome is the likely place where Mark's gospel was recorded. And it's just a theory we don't know for certain. But again, most think it was in the 50s. I think it was in the 40s. But you're going to notice this, that Mark is not exactly a companion of Jesus, right? Like there is no Mark the disciple. So so how does Mark get all this information about Jesus? Well, there's two theories that are out there. One, being a companion of Peter, this is really Peter's account. Like this is Peter's gospel. Peter wasn't just an apostle. He was one of the big three, Peter, James, and John. 
who went with Christ everywhere that, that he went. Two, Mark may have been an eyewitness to some of the events himself. It's speculated that when the disciples are fleeing the Garden of Gethsemane, that Mark is with them. And one of the keys is this very unique little tidbit only found in Mark, and it's found in chapter 14. Uh, Mark 14, 15, and 52 says this, Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. One young man, following behind, was clothed only in a long linen shirt. And when the mob tried to grab him, he slipped out of his shirt and ran away naked. <laughs> okay, nobody else records this, only Mark does. So it could be that Mark was that young man. I mean, we don't know for sure, but it could be. There's an early church tradition that puts the Last Supper being at the home of Mark's family. And if that were the case, perhaps Mark slipped out, followed everybody to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, where all those events take place. Either way, it's pretty interesting stuff, isn't it? Like Matthew, Mark doesn't have a uniquely stated purpose. He does say in verse number one that his intent is to write about the gospel. And we just have to leave it at that. He's almost certainly writing to Gentiles who are in Rome. Some of the clues are found in how he explains basic Jewish customs in his gospel that would not necessarily um, be something you would need to do if you're writing to a Jewish audience, right? His Aramaic is translated at times as well. Again, if you're writing to Jews, you wouldn't have to do that. That's the language they spoke. That's what Christ spoke. Um, it's a shorter account of Jesus. It, it, it reads better. I think it reads much faster. You see Mark insert a lot of language like immediately, um, often in his letter. You almost get the feeling he's writing so he can he can actually read out loud to an audience. And, and I don't know, perhaps he did that. Perhaps Mark's writing down so that he can sit there and, and say, hey, gather around, let me tell you about Jesus. And he's reading what he wrote. I mean, that's very possible. We don't, we don't, we don't know. We, we do know that letters and texts were often read, though, to large groups of people in that time period, think about Paul. Paul wrote letters. It was read out loud in one church, then sent to another church. I mean, you didn't have one church of Ephesus. You had a bunch of churches in Ephesus, and when one and they met in homes. And so when one group read a letter out loud, they passed it on to the, to the next group. And that's kind of how it went. So perhaps that's what Mark is writing with that in mind. We don't know. But how does Mark contribute to the puzzle of the life of Christ? Well, if Matthew was focused on the Jewishness of Jesus on his identity as Messiah, what does Mark focus on? I think largely is on the humanity of Christ. You're going to see in Mark, Jesus perform a miracle or reveal some sort of supernatural truth or work. And then right away, you read things like, and he's tired, <laughs> or he's in anguish. There's a large focus on the supernatural and the miracles from chapters 1 through 8. And then what happens? Well, Peter provides insight into the divine nature of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, so it's just a little bit different from Mark, the humanity of Christ. He's the son of man in Mark, son of David in, in Matthew, son of man in Mark. Luke takes a different approach. So Luke is one of my favorites. He's a doctor. He's a historian. He's articulate. And here's the cool thing. Luke is not a Jew. He's actually a Gentile. He's a non-Jewish person. Some of the clues we have come from Colossians 4, 10 through 14, where Paul's going to list um, 
the only Jews. In the Greek, he literally writes those of the circumcision, because if you're not Jewish, you're not circumcised back then, right? He goes, among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, he's the only Jews for, who are my co-workers. And he gives a big list. And then he thanks two guys, Epaphras and Luke, who are not Jewish, but are Gentiles. The inference here is that Luke is, is not circumcised, and that tells us that, that, that Luke is, is not Jewish. But there are some other internal clues. So, so for instance, Luke writes his gospel in Greek. It's not written in Hebrew. It's not written in Aramaic. It's written in Greek. Um, he seems to have an intimate knowledge of the Septuagint. This is a big one. Uh, what is that? Well, that's the Old Testament, but it's the Old Testament translated into the Greek. That's not something you really see in our English translation. You have to read the Gospels in their original language to pick up on that kind of nuance. But you can tell, as you read the Gospel of Luke, you can tell his rendering of the Old Testament is slightly different because he's not reading an original you know, Hebraic text. He's reading the Old Testament translated into, into the Greek. And there are some things that are slightly different in the translations. Luke's account is the longest gospel. It's not even a standalone because the early church tradition puts Luke and Acts together. So they had Luke-Acts. Uh, he's writing to his friend Theophilus concerning the story of Jesus and how his followers ministered after his death and resurrection, forming the church. He tells Theophilus that he wants them to know the certainty of things that he's been taught. That phrase, the certainty of things, provides an important clue. Luke has information and details the other gospel writers don't have, and that's because it's highly likely he interviewed a lot of folks who were eyewitnesses or who knew eyewitnesses to the person and work of Christ. So the result is this. You have an inclusion of multiple women in, in, in Luke's gospel, numerous miracles that are unique only to Luke, in a work which sought to give new believers a reason to hold strong to their faith and the hope that is within them. He probably wrote his account in the 60s. Certainly after Mark, we're not entirely sure if he wrote before Matthew or not. I, I think he gets his account in before Matthew, though. And the reason I say that is because Luke doesn't mention any historical event after AD 62. So a huge clue is the end of Acts. He's writing Luke-Acts together. And Acts ends with Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Paul's released. He continues to minister for a little bit longer. And most of his letters, you know, they were treasured in the late first century by the early church, but they're completely ignored in Acts. <clears throat> you don't read about any of Paul's letters, really, in the book of Acts. Finally, another clue, Nero is traditionally to have thought to have been the emperor who executed Paul and a vast number of other Christians as well. He doesn't really start mass torture and execution of Christians, though, until after the great fire that he himself started in AD 64. So scholars feel pretty confident that Luke had to have been written um, before that, because, because if he was writing after that event, it's almost certain that the book of Acts would have included some mention of the great fire, of the torture, of the persecution that followed, simply because Luke is just, he's too detailed for that. He's too, he's too much of a historian uh, to really ignore a monumental event like that one. So there's, there's a lot of belief that he, he wrote before 
all of that. So he writes in the early 60s. He's writing to Theophilus, his friend, so he might be certain about the faith that he holds. So how does Luke's gospel then fit into the puzzle pieces of the life of Christ? So for starters, he's the only gospel writer who gives a sweeping overview of the life of Jesus. His account is the closest we have to a traditional modern biography. Only Luke starts with the story of Jesus with John the Baptist's birth and shows its connection to Mary and the birth of Christ. And then he takes us all the way to the resurrection and to the ascension. So you can view Luke as having an understanding of God's plan for humanity. And you see God's plan unfold all throughout his gospel. Second, Luke really focuses on salvation for all of humanity. It's not just a, a Jewish offer. It's an offer to the Jews first, the Gentiles second, but it's for all people. And I think if you could put a theme for Luke together, it would be Luke 19.10. He says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that what was lost. That's in reference to Zacchaeus. Luke is the only gospel writer to use the word salvation, and he uses save and reference to salvation more than any other book in the New Testament. God's salvation is a salvation for both Jew and Gentile. And I cannot stress this enough in regards to Luke. It's, it's, for, it's for all people. Finally, Luke puts a focus on outcasts. You see Jesus interact with people that, that we would assign the margins of society, the poor, the sinners, uh, and sinners in the sense that people strictly did not or did not follow the strict Pharisaic rules, okay? And of course, women. Women today, um, they have rights, privileges, are uh, they're on equal footing. And I know that some of you are going to take offense to that, but if you look at human history, can we just be can we be honest for a second, please? Look at human history. There has never been a time where men and women are on equal footing like right now. I mean, we live in, a, in, a, in a, an incredible time. Women in the first century had zero rights. They were not even considered, you know, people in many cases. They were relegated to essentially property. Jesus is unique in that he treats women as individuals. He captures, uh, Luke captures those moments in his writings of Jesus one-on-one. -on -one with the woman caught in adultery, right? With Mary Magdalene, with, with, with the woman who is anointing his feet. Like and there, there's, there's so many great moments where Christ interacts with women. Uh, and you can see that in, in, in Luke's gospel. So there's a lot of socioeconomic themes woven into that account. Um, but, but, but Luke, is that's on purpose. He wants you to see that Christ spends time with those who are considered outcasts. All right, so now we've kind of come to the granddaddy of them all. We've come to John. Got Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptics, the office similarity. They build upon each other. They complement each other. They're pretty tight. And then, then you got John, <laughs> okay? John is a little bit out in left field, but there's reasons for that. So without John, the puzzle's incomplete. Like, you, you, you need John. So I, I really should come back and do a whole other episode just on John because what I'm going to offer you today is not even scratching the surface of this, but it, it works for the purpose of this particular podcast. So John identifies himself in his gospel writing as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never mentions himself by name. He keeps it anonymous. By the way, that's really important because in about another hundred years or so, there's going to be a lot of apocryphal writings 
Bell and the Dragon, Gospel of Judas, that kind of stuff. That'll start to appear, and they're going to have the apostles' names attached to them. None, and this is really important, none of the gospel writers explicitly mention they're the authors. They keep it anonymous. The evidence we have that they're the authors is both internal, meaning from the text, and external, meaning we have historical evidence to kind of verify it and back it up. Not going to get into all of that today, but but we're we're absolutely sure it was a John who did write his gospel, all right? And when he wrote it is a little bit of a different matter. The short answer is we have no idea. <laughs> but it was likely between AD 55 and AD 95. I know it's a pretty long long gap. Personally, I hold to a date in the early to mid 90s. Church tradition, notably from Jerome, puts John's death at about AD 98. And that would have been while he was on the island of Patmos and in the time where he would have received the visions he records in Revelation. The strongest argument, I think, for a later date regarding John rests in the high view of Christology that's present. No other gospel emphasizes both the deity of Jesus and his subordination to God the Father like John does. In fact, John 1... 1 through 18. It was very rich with theological doctrine and is closely related to passages like Philippians 2, 5, and 11, Colossians 1, 15, and 20, and Romans 9, 5, um, which by this point, being the late first century, were heavily circulated among believers and they have a high view of Jesus as the Son of God and, and, and also being subordinate to God the Father. Okay, There's a reason why John puts a lot of emphasis on this, though. Towards the end of the first century, and certainly well into the next century, there's a belief called Gnosticism that begins to impact the church in a a very negative way. Gnostics believe that Jesus didn't die a physical death, but another person, perhaps Judas Iscariot, dies in his place. Gnostics placed little value on the material world. They they super-spiritualized everything. They, They placed everything in the spiritual and in wisdom. So notice that John begins his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Nobody else starts like that. Why does John start like that? You know, why does John say, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us? Well, it's because John is looking at this movement. It's in its infancy when he's writing. Some scholars don't even recognize it until well after John's death. But I I just, where I'm at is I, I see... Gnosticism began to bubble up at the end of the first century. You can see things here and there kind of pop up. And you almost get the feeling that John does too. Kind of like how today you can get a sense of where the future might be going, right? Someone might be very perceptive. And they can see some things kind of bubble at the surface a little bit. And say, you know what? In 20 years, in 50 years, this is where humanity is going. I think it's clear as day. And, 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 and they're right. And perhaps John had that perception. He could just see, okay, this is going to be an issue not too far down the road. I won't be here to, to deal with it, but it's coming. And so let me address it now. And, and that language that John uses to start his gospel, it is a direct, I, I, I think, it's a direct attack on Gnosticism. Because Jesus 
is not just spirit. He's not just wisdom. He is flesh. He is among us. He is the, the word of God, the wisdom of God. In other words, became human, John says. Man, he is really, he, he's, he's bringing it and socking it too. Gnostics with with that opening of his 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 gospel, and I think it's because he sees this. It's not a big movement at the time, but I think it's because he sees it's coming. I I really do. I think he's perceptive at at, at that. Okay, so why does he write his gospel if other three gospel writers had theirs out in circulation? Well, I think it it includes um, a few things. One, he he has a he has a purpose an actual stated purpose to writing his gospel. John 20, 30, and 31 says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So it doesn't get any plainer than that. Yeah, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke out there. But John's going to add his to the mix too because John wants you to believe. He wants you to believe so your faith grows and, and, and flourishes. He wants you to believe so you'll have eternal life in Christ. I mean, that's really, really out there, very plain to see, very blunt, right? Now, what does he bring to the puzzle? Well, what John brings is really unique. And, and the, the most obvious, I think, is depth. John doesn't address uh, what's already been addressed by the previous synoptic gospels. So rather what John does, he adds his own eyewitness accounts and provides a different angle, which by itself completes the puzzle. I think we get a much richer, deeper, much fuller view of Jesus because of John's decision to tackle the story in a different way. Second, John wants you to know that Jesus is the Son of God. So Matthew, he's the Son of David the Jewish Messiah. Mark, he's the son of man who was human like we were. Luke makes it clear Christ came to save all of us, not just the Jewish people, but every one of us. But John, John wants you to know that Jesus is the son of the living God. He is Israel's savior. He was human. He does. He wants everyone to come to salvation for sure, but he's divine himself. That emphasis on Jesus' divinity, particularly the son of God, leads to another contribution that's unique to John. You cannot come to the Father without Jesus. Jesus is the one who reveals who God is, who provides access to God. The Gnostics believed salvation came through wisdom, which would mean revelation, right? And in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they certainly echo that to an extent. Revelation is important. But John, again, I think he is very perceptive and he sees the rise or the coming rise of Gnosticism and he sees the danger that's there. So he goes a step further. He knows salvation is available because of revelation that the synoptics talk about. But he wants you to understand that revelation comes from Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. That's a unique theme to John. You've seen Christ, you've seen God. That's unique to John himself. The synoptics talk about the Holy Spirit, but only John records deep, rich teaching on the Holy Spirit. John 14, 15, and 16 are, are all about the Spirit. 
and, and his work and his personhood and his role. And because of John, we know that Christ taught the Holy Spirit would have a role of, of counselor, that he would give the words to say when trials and troubles come, that he would convict the world of sin and bring us into communion with God. You, you, you find a fullness, I think, in the Trinity in John that you don't find in the other Gospels. The other Gospels, the, the view of the Trinity is, you know, hey, there's a dove that flew when Christ was baptized and the heavens opened and God said, this is my son. You know, that, that's, that's kind of it. John really expands on that and goes deeper. He's like, no, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have some good things. But you know what they forgot? <laughs> they didn't add this. How could they not add this? Here's this teaching that he gave us the night that he was betrayed. This big teaching on the Holy Spirit. And John includes the, the teaching uh, from, from Jesus about the Holy Spirit in his book. The others actually don't include. We also see how Christ was misunderstood more clearly in John, particularly by his unfollowers. Makes sense. John is not just an apostle. He's one of the big three who went with Christ pretty much everywhere. Uh, finally, finally, John's gospel, it's the most evangelistic of the four. There's a reason new believers are constantly told, hey, you should read John first. And they're told that because John's aim, again, is to write so that you will believe. None of the other Gospels are so upfront in their evangelism quite the way that John is. So two keys to understanding puzzle pieces for you, okay? One, know the Gospels were ancient biographical accounts, not modern ones. The two are very different. Today's biographies give you information overload about somebody. Ancient biographies, we don't care about none of that stuff. <laughs> we only care about that defining period of your life that everybody knows you for. Like, what, are you, what, what was your impact? What was your legacy? What do you know? What defines you? And that's what they focused on. Two, know who the gospel writers were, why they wrote what they wrote, and when they wrote what they wrote, because each writer brings something unique to the puzzle that helps you see the full picture. And the when is important. And I, and I hope you kind of see the when matters because it, it, just to go back to John, John sees the rise of a, of a deeply heretical movement that if it had been successful and it wasn't, could have destroyed the church, could have destroyed the movement and uh, that, that, was, that had been birthed of following Jesus. He sees it. He sees it. He sees it rising. So what does John do? He, he, he brings in his account. And I mean, it's not just the beginning. Think about Pilate. Pilate's conversation with Christ. Only John includes this line where Pilate talks to Jesus and he says, what is truth? Nobody else includes that. But why does John do it? Because again, there's this rise of Gnosticism where there's, a, there's an attack on the church. Hey, wisdom, it's all about the spiritual and immaterial and wisdom. And John is like, no, it's about Jesus. And, and he includes that scene with there, There's so much that John includes. And I don't know if that would have been in there if John wrote his gospel around the same time the others wrote. If he wrote in that gospel down in the 50s, I don't think you would have seen half of what he probably put in there. So, so when they wrote it is also... Very important too, okay? I wish I had more time to go further, but for now, we're going to have to draw this to a close. If you're interested in, in seeing not just how the Gospels, but the entire New Testament, 
How is it linked together? Um, how does it all work? I want to recommend a really good book for you. It's called Putting Together the Puzzle of the New Testament by Dr. Bill Jones. Putting Together the Puzzle of the New Testament by Dr. Bill Jones. Full disclosure, <clears throat> Dr. Jones was the president of Columbia International University during my time, and that's where I received my Master of Divinity degree from. But it's an excellent book. It's not written in academic language, so you can you don't have to worry about you know grad school jargon and junk like that. Anybody can read it and follow it, and I will tell you that if you do, you will certainly grow in your understanding of the New Testament. Um, I just want to say, look, <laughs> this kind of stuff that we're talking about today, it does matter. Um, and you say, well, why does it matter? Well, it matters because the more you can understand about the Bible, the scriptures, um, the culture, the people, the more you understand all of that, I think the better you're able to apply scripture, I think the better you're able to live out scripture as well. It, 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 that You're not taking someone's word for it. You know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're doing some homework, you're doing some digging, and you're knowing why you believe what you believe. I mean, I, my faith and assurance and certainty of Jesus and who he is is stronger because of this kind of stuff right here. It's not because of the Bible itself. I love the Bible. I mean, I'm a pastor. I preach it, right? But it's because of all the external stuff that we're talking about right here. I, I when, you, when you look at everything, you're like, man, I just don't see how it was coincidence. I just don't see how it could just, you know, willy-nilly kind of happened. Uh, it, 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 it didn't, right? So these, these, these little special episodes we do here and there, we kind of do bigger deep dives, and, we, and they tend to kind of, if you notice the pattern of the ones you've already had, uh, they kind of go outside of Scripture. They're, they're, they're all what we call extra-biblical, right? We, we look at the history. We look at stuff like we did today. We're breaking down the who, what, where, when, why of the Gospels. Um, it, 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 helps, it helps strengthen our faith. So we'll have these special podcast episodes sprinkling in between teachings from time to time. If you haven't subscribed to the Radiant Church podcast, make sure you do so because you never know when these kind of episodes are going to pop up. If you don't mind, leave us a good review. It helps other people discover what you're learning, and I believe it's going to minister to them and help them both find Jesus and grow in their walk. If you don't have a church home and you're local to the Seneca Clemson area, Come worship with us. Man, we would love to have you. Our service at Radiant Church, it starts at 10 a.m. each Sunday, okay? For more information, visit us online at radiantchurchsc.com. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to. We hope you have an amazing rest of your day.